You're listening to Don't Tell the Easter Bunny, a podcast celebrating the unsung festivities that won't be found on any normal calendar. This show is presented by a mother-son duo who like to keep it safe for work. I'm Bryce, the son. I'm Misty, the mom. And you can reach out to us at Don't Tell the Easter Bunny for Instagram and Facebook and at Don't Tell the EAS1 for Twitter. Or you can email us at Don't Tell the Easter Bunny at gmail.com. No special characters or spaces. Okay, let's hop to it. Well, good riddance to Dorian. Yep, say goodbye. Is I, it actually officially done, or is it still, like, going up in, like, I, northern areas? Of... I know it went to Nova Scotia, and oh. there's someone we follow on Instagram that actually was posting where their surge came from. They had a pretty big surge, too, so. I feel like, considering how slow it was going here in Florida, being up in Nova Scotia actually got pretty far. I know, it is amazing. I wonder if it's, um... One of the, like, world's longest ones? Or, yeah, on record? World record for it? Maybe. Um, I, um, wish it had definitely bypassed the Bahamas, but we are definitely blessed that it did not hit here like it was supposed to. No, especially not Orlando area either. Yeah. We, we... got a little bit of wind, a few branches down, uh, but nothing compared to what we had a couple of years ago, so. And definitely nothing what they had compared to in the islands there, so. Anyway, so because it's finally gone, we're finally back. Yay! Yay. <laughs> With two more days, although technically I kind of have a double day. Okay. Double day. Are you like, doing some double, double dipping? D, double D from, from Ed, Ed and Eddie. Oh, I, Ed, Ed and Eddie. I was thinking Dexter's Laboratory. Double D. His sister. Oh, okay. Well, I'm thinking the other one. Both are cartoon Ed, Ed and Eddie, yeah. <laughs> so anyway... All right, so uh, my days, I should say, are Defy Superstition Day. Okay. And what day do you think that probably is? So I know Friday the 13th is coming up this week. Yes. So it is Friday the 13th, but actually it falls on any th- um, 13th. So we'll get into that when I get to my part. But um, we get a double whammy because it is Friday the 13th this week as well. So really, you will be having a duke it out if you are celebrating that day. Yeah, you know, it's like, take your pick, because I'm going to talk about both. Okay. And what's your day? Well, my day is, interestingly, it could maybe be two different days, but it is supposed to be on September 15th, International Dot Day. And the reason, reason why I say it could be on several days is that on their website, um, the official website for this holiday, it's September 15th-ish. 15th-ish? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. And I can explain a little bit more about that when we get there. But because the 13th comes up before the 15th, would you like to start off this go? I guess I am up first, aren't I? All right. So I have Defy Superstition Day, which falls on December 13th. But this year happens to also be Friday the 13th. And uh, basically, it's kind of getting over your fears, your phobias, breaking any of those superstitions out there that you might have heard of. Um, So 
it's, I think, a positive thing in a way. It's not dwelling on them, although I think there's still a cool mystique, you know, about all these different uh, superstitions that we've heard growing up and stuff. But I think it's kind of cool because it's um, working through those phobias and fears and um, basically getting past the fact that superstitions are just superstitions. You know, they're fun stories, but nothing bad is going to happen to you uh, because a cat walks in front of you or you walk under a ladder or anything like that. Uh, some of the more popular ones I'm going to talk a little bit about. And of course, that will lead eventually into Friday the 13th. And uh, when when I say superstitions, like, what is the first thing you think of? Well, I also kind of think about the episode when you were talking about mirrors. So obviously, cracking a mirror will bring you seven years of bad luck. Yes, that's definitely on the top list of all the like very common superstitions. Don't open an umbrella inside. Yeah. And like you said, the black cat, don't let it walk in front of you and don't walk or walk under a ladder. It'll all bring bad luck in some way. Yeah, so it seems like the it's interesting that the pretty much on all the websites I went to visit, um, they had like the top thirteen, the top twenty five. Oh, the top thirteen, yeah. huh? The top ten, things like that. And um they they pretty much are all the same stories that we have just heard throughout um throughout our lifetime. And it's just kind of funny how we acquire those. And I don't think like I don't think I ever sat down and said, hey, you know, if you break a mirror, you get seven years of bad luck or this or that. I might have off-handedly commented when you were growing up, but I never really sat there and said that. So I think it's interesting how, like, the superstitions and folklore have come across the generations. And it's almost just by, I would say osmosis, but almost just, you know, kind of being there and someone throwing out, a, you know, a phrase here and there. And then eventually you're like, oh, okay, I understand what that means because it's in context or I end up going up and looking it up, you know, things like that. So well, um, I feel like media has to do a lot with it, too. Like, you know, you'll have, uh, you know, Halloween programs or something. And of course, to make a joke, they'll always have a mirror crack or something because the witch is hideous or whatever. Well, that is true. Once again, that's kind of, kind of like through osmosis, though, once again, you know, just looking at it and, and all that folklore that's come through. So, okay, so talking about some of those um, common superstitions, um, Women's Day magazine is the one that actually did 13, and you picked up on that one. So a few minutes ago, I think that's funny, because a lot of others are like the top 25, top 10, or whatever, but no, they want to go with the top 13. So you better break your superstition of hating the number 13 if you're going to read their article. What's the phrase for that again? Trichodecophobia? Trichodecophobia. We'll actually get to that a little bit later. But yeah, very good. Let my Greek come in. (laughs) There you go. And actually, we're going to talk about that too, the Greek. Oh, okay. So hopefully you will be able to provide some commentary there from your Greek. The the number, okay, so I'm going to go down their list. And once again, this is from uh, Women's Day uh, magazine. So their number one was the number 13. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's interesting because they kind of talked about just throughout history and that there's a lot of references to um, 13 in the Bible. So that's where I think a lot of people kind of picked up on not a bad 
I mean, I guess it was kind of bad because they really talked about it during like um, the Lord's Supper and leading up to crucifixion and stuff like that. But I think that's where it kind of got a mystique or aura Mm -hmm. or maybe um, that hint of this number is tied into something, you know? Unnatural. Yeah. So they did talk about how there were 13 guests at the Last Supper. Um, There were several references to 13 in that. And um, a lot of people believe, like, if you have 13 letters in your name, very unlucky. Of course, a lot of hotels and apartments don't have a 13th floor. And it's funny, I've been watching um, the old, old shows on TV lately, Dream On, and they have, like, I Dream and Genie and uh, Bewitched and all those different ones. And there was an episode where in I Dream a Genie, Dr. Bellows and his wife and Major Nelson and Anthony Nelson and Jeannie, um, they're, they're married at the time, and they all decide to go on a vacation. And I think uh, Roger Healy goes with them, too. And there aren't any rooms, or there's a mix-up with their rooms. So Jeannie <laughs> decides she's just going to blink a whole new floor. Mm-hmm. But it happens to be the 13th oh, floor. No. <laughs> so you can imagine so much stuff ensued. Not, you know... D- it ensued because there was a new floor all of a sudden, but the fact that it's um, the 13th floor and they had, it was, it was a really funny episode because they had this drunk guy and he'd show up and he'd get off the elevator and he's like, uh, yeah, 13th floor. And by the end, he's like, got everyone convinced there's a 13th floor. And of course they blink it away and he ends up on the roof. Yeah. <laughs> say that. So anyway, I think that's really funny. And the funny thing is though, I don't think that I have been in that many buildings that don't have a 13th floor. See, I don't know, because, like, I don't think we've been on the 13th floor that many times. Well, I don't I don't think I've personally been on the 13th floor, but, like, you know, when you go to push the buttons and yeah. stuff, there's not a jump from 12 to 14, there's the 13th floor. But do you think you would pay attention to that? I, I have a few times. I mean, I don't, in every elevator that I go in, of course, down here in Florida, we don't have really tall buildings, so most don't have more than 13 floors, but still looking you know when we were in new york and things like that i occasionally kind of look at that and i um i haven't noticed although i have i think i know have noticed that they have the concierge floor sometimes where you have to you know do your key and then get access to those upper floors that maybe sometimes they start at like floor 14 and maybe there's on a 13 and you kind of don't notice it because of that break maybe so I've also thought about it when it came to, like, when we went to Myanmar. I don't remember us ever actually going into an elevator, but I know, like, many societies, mainly Japan and I think China, like, number four is their unlucky 13 because it it sounds very similar to the word meaning death. And so I've always been, like, I've heard that they don't have a fourth floor on most buildings, too. Yeah, I don't remember us ever going in an elevator there. And I once again, I think there were very low buildings that we went in. Yeah. Most of the government buildings were only like two-story. I think there were a couple three. The yacht we were on was like two stories. But we That's hardly, getting close. <laughs> we hardly ever used the elevator. Mostly did the stairs. And then I think all of our other hotels were all... Single, well, the one that was kind of built into the hill on the river there was two-story. But otherwise, they were mostly one-story. Yeah. 
I don't know if that's because of construction and codes and typhoons and things like that, or if it's maybe because of the fact they don't want to get close to four. Maybe. I mean, they certainly have buildings that are over four floors. Yeah, but you know, we really didn't see that many. Yeah. We didn't, so... Anyway, so uh, going back to Women's Day uh, magazine here, Black Cats was number two. And uh, they say that in Egypt, for example, cats are considered lucky, but this dates back to ancient times when cats were considered sacred. Um, So it's kind of interesting that it would come out of that and lead into, like they said, our modern day fear of black cats started in the Middle Ages when they believed that witches could take the form of a black cat. So it's interesting, once again, that societies have changed. You know, they were so sacred. They look at black cats as being a wonderful thing and actually to have a black cat's even the best thing. And then all of a sudden, during the medieval times, it totally changed. And it was a totally different concept, thinking that a person could shapeshift basically into this being. Yeah. Uh, Three, breaking a mirror. So you did pretty well with your guesses over there. Yeah, well. So, yeah, breaking a mirror. And we talked about this during the mirror episode, Seven Years of Bad Luck. And uh, that goes back to quite a f- few cultures. And once again, goes back to the person's soul and regeneration. And seven kind of being that magical number for regeneration. Mm-hmm. Things like that. So I think you said this one, walking under a ladder. You said it, and oh, then I repeated okay. it. Okay, well, there you go. So basically, <laughs> I, like, I like their first sentence. So quoting exactly here, it makes sense that you shouldn't walk under a ladder for safety's sake. It does. <laughs> but superstition advises against it for other reasons. So an open ladder forms a triangle. Do, 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 do. You know me and conspiracies mm-hmm. and triangles here. Uh, but... In this case, uh, the triangle, it's more mystic rather than conspiracy in this case. And that was because it used to represent the symbol of life. And you were tempting fate, basically, if you worked through, walked through the life. Um, so that was one of them. See, I have an issue with that, though. Because, like, if you look at a lot of different things, they make triangles. Like, architecturally speaking, if you're talking about, like, a roof, you know, if it has slants on it, that makes a triangle. So aren't you walking, isn't your house itself, like, (laughs) tempting fate? I think that's pushing it. You aren't really walking through that triangle. It's on the top of your house. But, like, it it extends. (laughs) That's what forms a triangle. It goes down to the horizontal I think that's why probably their statement is triangles were once considered a symbol Mm -hmm. of life. And then um, another thought is that uh, the three sides of a reference to religion, that you've got the the trinity. And um, basically, if you break that, then... um, you know, you're you're inviting bad luck into mm-hmm. into that space. So, it, once again, it's kind of interesting how these go back to a lot of religions, or maybe not per se what we think is a religion, such as Christianity or something like that, but very hardcore beliefs of societies, which in a way can be their religion. You know. Yeah. So it is. Um, it's kind of. I don't know. To me, it's weird because like okay someone had to you know 
um, walk up to the ladder and say, hey, I shouldn't walk under it. Let's say, oh, because I'm breaking either the Trinity or I'm, you know, walking through life and tempting fate. And I just, it's kind of weird that someone even came up with that to begin with. Yeah. But when we, I guess when we go into phobias and talking about that a little bit more, phobia is a phobia. So if you come up upon something and it causes you to stop and think, then I guess you could come up with any reason you wouldn't want to do it and then uh, pass that on through hearsay. To other or people. if you want to go back to conspiracies, it's all about fear mongering and control. And... <laughs> there you go. They did a. Uh, they flashed these flashcards. Well, I guess it wouldn't have been flashcards back then, but what cave drawings or something, and said, bad. Triangles, bad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Ladders are triangles. Therefore, they're bad. Mm-hmm. So is that, you know, if all ladders, or if all triangles are bad, and ladders or triangles are all ladders bad? But see, that's a good question, too, because there are many ladders that don't like when I think of a ladder forming a triangle, it's going to be one that actually like folds out to have the two stands. But there are ladders, too, that just have like the one side. Yeah. And so they just lean up against the wall. So then they just make a um, a 90 degree triangle in that case. Yeah. Yeah. And then they, they do have these those ones that are foldable now, so you can actually, like, fold them and make them, like, a scaffolding. Those work well over, like, pools if you have to clean your screen. Yeah. Like that. But anyway. Yeah, I just think it's weird that someone, like, would walk up to an object or see something like Black Cat and be like, oh, I'm going to make this comment. And then all of a sudden it, you know, transcends all these generations. So, all right, number five, throwing salt over your shoulder. So, okay, question about this. Isn't it that you spill the salt, and in order to protect yourself from whatever spirit it is, then you actually throw the salt behind your shoulder? Yes. And do you uh, know why you throw it behind your shoulder? Mm, because you're hitting the demon's face. Yeah, actually. Is it? Yes! <laughs> <laughs> that was just a guess, really. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so um, it's that, you know, that you've... Uh, I know that uh, Looney Tunes did this a lot. The little devil sitting on one side, the little angels sitting on one mm-hmm. side, kind of, you know, your conscience and pulling at each other. So it was thought that um, over your left side was the demon or the devil. So if you actually toss the salt back that way, it would hit his face. And um, if it hits him in the eye, of course, it's going to cause havoc, getting salt in your eye. And um, hopefully this would kind of disorient him. And cause chaos in his world so um he wouldn't you know then try to do anything bad to you <laughs> i didn't know there was actually a thought that on the left side there was like this evil being yeah. or evil consciousness or whatever so it was when i started researching i mean i knew some of the superstitions a little bit more than just you know by name or whatever but still when she actually like sit down and really read about that the 13 i think was the most interesting because it just had so many references all around had references in the bible had references um in daily life i think that that is a very common one that definitely a lot of people even if they aren't afraid of it you know they still bring it up and 
every time that if Friday the 13th comes up, people mention it, you know, it's a big, big deal. And it's just, you know, should just be another day on the calendar. But it's, um, it's interesting. And it really is probably the Friday the 13th, that gets more, um, I think, press, you know, but definitely the number 13 in other situations seems to kind of throw up that red flag for a lot of people. Aunt Shell was born on the 13th. Yeah. And actually, I had a friend um, that had so many, quote, well, she felt that she had so many bad things happen to her on the 13th that she literally took the day off of work and hmm. stayed home. So in some people's minds, you know, it really is true. Yeah. So, but anyway, uh, you said this one, opening, I think you did, opening an umbrella inside. Yes. Yes. So do you know where that comes from? Just common courtesy, like, if you're in a room with a bunch of people, you don't want to be opening something that can whack them in the face. <laughs> They're not demons that deserve salt. <laughs> so that kind of goes back to the, why would you go under a ladder because yeah. it's stupid. So, um, so there's d- different things on this. It, that was another thing, too. There's some that, like, it's a definite. Like, there's no, with the salt, there's a definite. This is how it came about. With the um, mirrors, it's kind of definite. You know, it goes along the lines of regeneration, at least. Now it could change, you know, um, the amount of time, things like that, according to society. But still was that idea of regeneration. The umbrella is uh, one of those that uh, has a lot of different ones. Okay. So I don't know really which one is right. And I guess you could pick any one that you want. Well, what's your favorite origin <laughs> story? Uh, I think... And the interesting thing about this, of course, they do say, um, yeah, well, they don't say sunbrella, but umbrella and stuff. Um, umbrellas are also used for the sun and protection from the sun. In fact, I think, you know, now I know the word more is parasol. Same. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But um, I do think a lot more people are using, quote, umbrellas now. And we saw a lot of that the other day at the beer festival. A lot of umbrellas out yeah. there. But um the uh, so i guess the one that i like the best is protection from the sun so it should only be used outside to protect you from the sun and if you open it inside there's no sun to protect you from so you're insulting the sun god so uh, now we're pagans (laughs) does that work in like christian societies or like Islamic societies, anything <laughs> besides like Greek or Roman? Well, you know, hey, we worship the, or not worship, but we have Christmas trees, right? And Yule logs and all this. So it gets back to, I guess, that, that fine line again. Where is it, you know, between if we're going to make a pagan holiday, we're going to make a Christian holiday to go along with it. Uh huh. So, so uh, that was one. And that is probably, since you asked me, you know, my favorite one. And then, um, just some people think bad luck rains on you if you open inside. I don't know why an umbrella would produce rain, but and then um, it's supposed to. So not only does it protect from the sun, but it protects from the rain. And uh, the same thing that if uh, if you're using it inside, it's no longer for protection because you're already protected from the rain, from the sun, anything like that. So um, it basically, if you're not using on the opposite sides, we talked about the sun and 
upside in the sun god. Well, the opposite side is if you're not using it to protect you from the rain and opening inside, you're insulting any of the spirits within your house. See, you're bumping their faces. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, so that, I, I don't know. That, that whole superstition, I don't quite get. No. I can get some of the other ones, but that one, yeah, doesn't make sense. Some so. parent was just really tired, probably back in Victorian <laughs> age, of like their kids always opening up their parasols before they left to go outside. And so to, again, you know, it was fear-mongering and control, and they're just like... <laughs> If you do that, something bad will happen. Probably. It'll be me spanking you, so. probably. Now, like I said, there were several sites that had these, but I just happened to grab this one because I like the fact that they did the number 13. Um, but it this particular site did not say where that really came from. Uh, so I don't know if that was, you know, how like far back that goes. I don't know how, you know, I don't know when umbrellas were made or parasols. I think they've been around for very long time but i'm not sure yeah but probably not like the 14th century or medieval times probably right? yeah you think so i think so what out of like a big um palm leaf or oh yeah it could be ear or something like material. that it could be leather or something i guess like romans probably had them too or something i guess i just would have thought those societies would have just gone inside <laughs> i mean <laughs> What? Otherwise, later on in different eras, no, you can't go. If you're medieval, you have to go. You have to stay inside. Yeah. What else did they have to do? I mean, they had the plague they had to deal with, so sure, stay inside. They couldn't walk around a window shop. They couldn't saunter. (laughs) They couldn't saunter. All right, next one. This would be, in your terms, atiswe. And so bless you. Yes, the saying God bless you after a sneeze. And uh, gesundheit. Yes, gesundheit. And uh, this one is from Pope Gregory the Great. And uh, basically, this was attributed to him. And uh, Women's Day has down that. He said it to people who sneezed during the bubonic plague. Pretty much what I had heard, um, how it got started, but apparently they are, they said that this wasn't even the reason it got started, so it wasn't like a weird superstition. He just obvi- always blessed these people after they sneezed. Okay. But um, there, it was attributed wrongly to the fact that basically the soul's leaving the body, you know, when you sneeze. Mm-hmm. And that's how I had always heard the superstition. So I didn't know it was really attributed to a pope and that he was just doing a good thing. You know, he was just... Being the pope. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> blessing the people. So so that's how, um, how it got started, actually. Have I ever told you the full expression of Ateswe? No. So Ateswe means to your wishes in French. And it is, you know, meant for whoever sneezes, and it's your bless you. Um, that's on the first sneeze. If they do a second sneeze, you say atezumu to your loves. And so <laughs> if you actually do a third sneeze, they get really just kind of like, you know, French. They're like over it and really <laughs> want to make it dramatic. 
So the full expression after that becomes Avec un grand A et beaucoup de S et à tes enfants et à ton agent et qu'elle dure toujours, qu'elle tient dure toujours. So that basically translates to like with a really big A and many S's because that relates to just how it's spelled to your children, to your money, and let them endure forever, and let theirs endure forever, or always. So basically, it's like just saying, I want all the blessings for your own finances, and your children's finances, and your children's children's finances, and stuff like that. So when do you think they're told that expression, like, when do they have to learn that? When they're five years old and all of those words? Uh, again, it goes back to the parents. I just get fed <laughs> up with the kids sneezing over and over. That that would be horrible for us when we go through allergy season. I know. The French would get very mad at us. This is true. <laughs> I, I did not say this one. Carrying a rabbit's foot. I forgot about that one. And so... Uh, but the luckies rabbit's foot right yeah actually they had uh they did have on one of the sites broken down good superstitions and bad superstitions Mm -hmm. so um yeah just just because it's i think that we've kind of made the term superstition negative but there you know are some quote good superstitions out there yeah so um and the wednesday magazine says that uh this can be traced uh, as far back as the 7th century B.C. So this gets back into kind of religion um, or paganism because it was a talismanic symbol. And it was believed that the left hind foot was a handy uh, way to benefit from the rabbit's luck. So um, basically, that's what they focused on. So I guess if you had a different foot of the rabbit, it wouldn't bring you good luck I guess but not. then the Chinese took it even further they actually believed that it was um, prosperity and uh, some some uh, cultures have thought that it like rightfully so I guess rabbits you know are the symbol of reproduction uh, that if uh, if you carry around rabbit's foot that that will help you get pregnant so okay yeah so there was some interesting things with rabbit's foot there because uh i guess i never heard it broken down like that before i just you know you carry rabbit's foot for good luck and i had never dug deeper into that or why it's just something that you're told you carry rabbit's foot for good luck knocking on wood yes yes so um I was told that it was because, here we go again, this is all about, like, gods, you know, and infuriating them or not. So I had been told that if you knock on wood, it basically, well, two different things. It scares scares the little trolley things out, or it deafens them so they can't hear of your good fortune, basically. I think you've told me if... You already knew the deafening part. I think you may have told me that one. Yeah, so those are the two that, like, I've heard it as. But um, what they said is, okay, so, I mean, ultimately it comes back to tempting fate because you shouldn't say the good stuff that's coming up. You know, mm-hmm. keep that to yourself. So I guess kind of like a birthday candle thing. You know, if you say it out loud, it won't happen type thing. In this particular article, they talk about 
so it's spirits living in trees so it's the same sort of same idea but if you knock on it um it was actually calling them for protection oh, okay so i uh, still had to deal with spirits in the wood but not like driving them out or um, creating chaos for them so they wouldn't hear it and then crossing your fingers yes and this is another one that's um quite a few different theories and I am going to read this because I do find this fascinating. So um, the first one that they have is when Christianity was illegal, which we're going to Europe in October and again, we're going to go see the Attic um, Church. And I think that's so interesting that a whole church was built in an attic because Christianity was illegal. It's apparently this church is in Amsterdam. And it was during World War II. Is that right? Or was it no, before? No, it, it was before that. Okay. Yeah, it was before that. So um, so I just kind of find that interesting, especially when reading this, because like, I, I know Christianity is illegal in several cultures, but you know, to actually just kind of hear, hear it is so, so, such a foreign thing to me, because it's everywhere, you know, around us and things like that. But um, so... When Christianity was illegal, crossing fingers was a secret way for Christians to recognize each other. Is it supposed to be like the cross? I, you know, it didn't really um, talk about that. And um, I actually made that's a good guess. What I thought was it looks like the, the fish, the Pisces fish. Um, I can't remember the name of the fish that they draw. Ictus. Yes, thank you. <laughs> uh, but that's what it reminded me of. Well, I could kind of see, like, maybe it would actually be, like, the he in Greek, which I don't know if that's actually where we get the word Christian from or anything, because it's supposed to be, like, C-H if you translate it. Oh, yeah. So it kind of has that X-looking <laughs> look to it. Then another one that they said was during the Hundred Years' War, an archer would cross his fingers to pray for luck before drawing his uh, bow back. Okay. That one kind of makes sense, I guess, because the shape would already be there. And then the last one that they have is the, um, which is even older theory, they say, it was a gesture toward off witches or evil spirits. So I think I see a pattern with superstitions. No witches are allowed. <laughs> or, or spirits or yeah. gods or anything. Or just don't anger them, I think is the thing. Yeah. Yeah. So. Something weird, though, about crossing fingers, too, is like, it's supposed to be a good thing, right? Like, if you want something to happen, you cross your fingers. But at the same time, if you cross your fingers behind your back, then that's, like, untrustworthy. <laughs> I think, I mean, it... It's a good thing and not a good thing. I mean, in my mind, I think of it, I guess, you know, you say cross your fingers or whatever, but it's almost like hoping it will happen rather than it's going to happen, you know? So it's almost like a, to me, not negative, but it isn't totally positive either because you haven't sealed the deal yet. That's how I feel. Okay. See, but then when, like, you put it behind your back, is it because it's behind the back and, like, you know, that's betrayal and, like, you're double-crossing somebody? Or, like, uh, I don't know, it's weird because you always say something like, oh, I, it definitely won't happen, but then you're, I 
guess, like you said, well, you hope it will. Yeah, so. and I think that's kind of when you do it behind your back, at least to me. Now, once again, it's not in this article and I didn't dig deeper into it, but it's almost like that, the birthday candle or the knocking on the wood. If I hide it, they aren't going to see that I'm hoping and wishing for that. So hopefully, you know, I won't anger someone and they'll take it away from me before it happens. Okay, the synapses are connecting. They're firing. <laughs> yeah, but that, that may not be the true meaning of it, but that's how I've always envisioned it. So, yeah, because, I mean, it's like fingers crossed, meaning, so um, you have job interview coming up, and, you know, so, like, if someone said to you, fingers crossed, it would be very hopeful yeah. that you're getting it, but you don't know yet, you know, if you're getting it, but we sure hope that you know so it's to me it's a wishing thing and a hoping thing and it's kind of that birthday candle thing i guess and it can be a negative hopeful thing. <laughs> it could be a negative yeah. yes if you uh if you have an enemy and you want to crush your fingers that they're going to trip or something so all right horseshoes yeah they're lucky too yeah so um they also talk about different uh theories there and uh I had always heard, you know, he's got to face up because basically it collects the good. And okay. And if he faces down, it dumps out the okay. good stuff. So, um, so what they talk about is the first is the devil appeared at the door of a blacksmith who agreed to remove his shoe from his hoof if he promised never to enter a place where a horseshoe is hung over the door. So I had never, ever heard that one before. No. That's like, uh, I guess, preventing... The devil coming through your door. So, and the second belief is that the witches rode on broomsticks because they were afraid of horses. So a horseshoe is a good charm to scare them off with, which I had never heard either one of those, that they ride on brooms because they don't like horses. There are other reasons why apparently they rode on brooms. So Hi. like, I, uh... <laughs> I I feel like that is a very large stretch you know, of the and, imagination. And the funny thing is, too, I mean, the next one that I get into is probably not Halloween, but a lot of these could definitely lend their, themselves to Halloween. So mm -hmm. maybe that's, well, it's not October 13th, though, but maybe why they did Superstition Day on September 13th, even though uh, Holiday Insights really didn't know who developed it and stuff like that. But It's awareness. Yeah. <laughs> yes, they get you prepared what? for the next week. So I like this month. because, you know, the whole idea is, once again, the Defy Superstitions Day is so you can get over these fears and know that they're just stories. <laughs> but I'm like, when we get to phobias, okay, there are some phobias that I have, but these superstitions, I I don't know. I, I don't know how many people really, you know, believe them. Like I said, I know the one person that stayed home, but just don't know in general. It's like... Is it just fun stories to tell, you know? Yeah. Anyway, uh, next one is four-leaf clovers. Mm-hmm. So, once again, that is a good superstition. So, this goes way back biblically. And uh, in the article, it says that when Adam and Eve were evicted from the Garden of Eden, Eve snatched a four-leaf clover as a remembrance of her days in paradise. I don't remember that. I have never heard that <laughs> either. And I have read that part of the Bible quite a bit. And I have been to uh, all my little Sunday school classes, and they never talked about that. 
So, uh, like I said, you know, my research didn't go beyond just kind of briefly looking these up. So I, that is one that I will have to go look up or if any of the people out there know a little bit more about that story and can substantiate it. But... I feel like she would have had other priorities instead <laughs> yes. of being like, oh, yes, let me find a rare looking yeah. clover. So anyway, so yeah, it's one that I don't, I've never heard that before. But then again, some of these others I haven't heard either. They seem a little bit more plausible. So basically, the lucky attributes have been assigned to that uh, rare plant. But I still don't think it's necessarily based on that but that's um that's probably me for not doing my research and looking that up but that's a fun kids you know (laughs) pick and choose what you want to believe yes so so uh we are up to number 13 okay can i guess maybe you can guess i don't think you'll get it okay i um i was thinking about this when you were saying like you know hopeful for some of your enemies to go through something like stepping on the crack and you'll oh, break your mother's back that's a good one you know i didn't really see that in the different ones that i did but yeah so it's not that apparently no it isn't that, that would have been a better one than i think the really? here yeah bird droppings on your head i've heard that you know that's bad i don't think you want it to ever happen anyhow well, um, it's actually one of the good superstitions. Okay, so I've also heard it was good, but I don't think it is. I personally have had a few bird droppings on my head. Yeah. And I can tell you nothing good ever came out of it. No. So. But um, basically, they believe it brings wealth, prosperity, and everything like that because it's a sign from heaven. If it were, like, bat poop, then you could sell the guano (laughs) and get some money off of that. Maybe, but, yeah. um, Actually, the worst one that I had uh, was when I was acting, and we were doing a murder mystery on board a a ship. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was outside at a table, and you were in the middle of a scene, and all of a sudden a bird comes, and, I mean, it was all over me <laughs> yeah and i couldn't break character or anything i mean i could do it in character and get upset about the bird but it wasn't like i could leave and clean it off right away either so so yeah that was not a very good experience not for you but i'm sure for everybody watching <laughs> yeah it was probably very very entertaining <laughs> there was another time that we did a murder mystery i don't know if we told you about it but um it was, an, it was an immersive one, and it was at a hotel, a really cool old hotel that um, definitely has some ghost stories to it, but uh, it was over three days. It was a lot of improv, and the people, you know, that are there taking part of it and part in it um, definitely immerse themselves in it and things like that, too, and, like, half the people at the hotel are there for the murder mystery and half are not. And um, at one point, they chased me um, to get some information or something and chased me out. And I had to hide under a bush for several hours. I don't know if I told you that. And then we, um, of course, had one of the the murders happen. And it happened out by the pool. And uh, our our effects were pretty good, actually, like the blood and everything and how they... um, how they did it was really, really good and pretty lifelike. So 
uh, they, the murder at the pool was a gunshot. And of course, you know, he was bleeding profusely from his heart area mm-hmm. and it looked very much like real blood and it was all over and it was not stopping. It was, you know, through his shirt on the pavement, he was down and some other people in the hotel, of course, heard the quote gunshot. Uh, cause we did, we used, um, real guns, but with blanks. Right. So, uh, so they weren't like fake guns or anything like that. So they really did make a pretty big, big loud noise. And of course the people saw the gun and they saw the shooter. Um, and they, they see a person bleeding on yes, the ground. So they called, <laughs> called 911. Oh no. <laughs> yeah. And 911 showed up. <laughs> yeah. So that was interesting. Very fun. Uh, very different. So. Anyway, but the only thing was you really couldn't get away, and it was really hard. Um, you know, they, they had to kill off different people throughout the weekend, and most people that had to go back to a job or different things like that would be killed off first, and it would be very hard to get them out off property because, um, because you know, you can't have a dead person just walking around. Yeah. And, I mean, these people that were in these murder mysteries and gave to these things were in these murder mysteries. You, you didn't get a break. They would follow you to your room, things like that. So very Oof. interesting. But anyway. All right. So another thing that um, we don't think about, I think, is maybe superstitions. I don't know if they're as wives' tales or just, um, I don't know what they would be considered, but they are actually superstitions. And uh, just briefly, I'll go through them. But like itchy palms. Yes. Twitching eyes. Things like that. Um, twitching eyes. Yeah. What does that mean? <laughs> All right. So uh, the twitching eyes. Had too much coffee. <laughs> well, they talk about stress. So I mean, it's like yeah, there's so many things that could twitch your eye. But anyway, this is from MrCurious.com. and um. It, it depends. Once again, this is the one that goes into a lot of different things, but, um, you know, we're f- familiar with it basically as a muscle spasm. It can happen for a whole lot of different things. It could be tired. It could be, um, could be something that's irritating your eye. It could be stress. But for um, what they say, in India, the left eye twitching is considered bad omen, while the twitching of your right eye is considered a good sign. Well, if you have both going on at the same time. <laughs> Then it probably negates it. <laughs> Maybe. Just have a very normal average event. Yeah. Uh, Chinese tradition, the superstition is the other way around. Okay. So, uh, Africans believe that the twitching one's lower eyelid is a sign of impending sorrow. Well, if they're going to cry, yeah. <laughs> and here's, I mean, the, the medical reasons. I don't know why they're, it's not really superstition. They have it listed, but, you know, why we would know it and... Why it's like, it's kind of goofy because it is truly a medical condition. Stress, lack of sleep, eye problems. Um, but basically, it's just the muscles around the eyes, you know, contracting, things like that. And um, so they talk about how it's, you know, how it is kind of stupid as well to think of it's anything other than an actual medical condition hmm. type thing. Then, of course, sneezing, we already talked about that. Um but sneezing like if somebody says your name or talking about you, then you're, you sneeze or like your ears burn or something, right? No, the ear, well, ears burning is talking about you. Okay. So, yeah. So there's a lot of things like that. 
Oh, and this one actually talked about too. Um, yeah, I talked about that. I had learned it was the soul leaving for a minute or whatever, but I had forgotten about this that because um, I had heard this too that uh, your heart skips a beat when you sneeze. So I was blessing you during that missing heartbeat. Oh, well. Okay. So, anyway, so most of those came from mysticurious dot com. Thank you, Miss Securious, for that uh, <laughs> wealth of information. <laughs> All right, so um, so that brings me to, which I should have probably started 10 or 13, 13 to 1, because the first that they had was the Friday the 13th, so this is the double whammy. Uh, we've got the Defy Superstition Day, because mm-hmm. it happens to be September 13th, mm-hmm. but this September, it actually is also Friday the 13th. Uh, it only occurs twice a year. So this year in 2019, it's September and December. Hmm. So, and uh, actually, when Dad wrote one of the blog posts, he had put Friday the 13th and it got mixed up or whatever on the days. So I had to, you know, I thought, okay, not a problem. He wrote it and there'll be Friday the 13th. So I'll, you know, just date it to go out on that day. And um, I had to keep looking and looking and looking and looking for a month. That had a Friday the 13th, and it uh, was quite quite a bit later. So last year, last time it happened was July of last year. Okay. So well over a year to the next Friday yep. the 13th. So, so Angel does have occasionally her birthday on Friday the 13th. Yeah. You know, I've never asked her, like, she had bad things happen? Did she actually have good things happen? Yeah, I mean, if you're born <laughs> on that day, might as well get something good out I of know. it. I know. I would think you would get good because you'd be getting your presents and other things and taking out to dinner and stuff like that. So anyway, so we kind of talked about Friday the 13th already. And uh, so this leads into what you were starting to say. Um, tris- Triskaidekaphobia. So the fear of the number 13 kind of goes back to in general... It was just tied into bad events. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily the date, but just the number itself. So that's how it just kind of got ingrained in people that it was more a negative thing and just stuck with people. And, um, of course, one of the things that really made it mainstream was the movie. Yeah. Which I did not realize was 1980. Yeah. Goodness gracious. <laughs> I, I remember... Oh, Mama really wouldn't let me watch horror movies, and um, probably for a good reason. Because after I did, after she did let me, and I was still kind of young, I was like, "Yeah, probably not a yeah. good thing." But um, we were over at um, Grandma and Grandpa's house, and we actually had family down from Chicago. I had um, my uncle was teenager at that time because he was not that many years difference. And most of the cousins that had come down were about you know, were teenagers at that time. And it was Friday the 13th. Now, it was interesting because back then, cable was not a huge thing yet. Mm-hmm. Not all neighborhoods had it. And um, if they did, it was more people could that could definitely afford it. So, um, like, whenever I wanted to see... Uh, was it, I don't know if it was Disney Channel back then. I don't was Disney. I don't know. But anyway. Disney Channel <laughs> showed Friday the 13th. No, no, no. I'm just thinking. So it's like all these, you know, uh, fun kids things. 
I would have to watch on Saturday mornings, Saturday morning cartoons mm-hmm. and things like that. But when I went over to their house, <laughs> I could watch it any time and all. That was like the cool thing. But they also had HBO back then. Yeah. And it was kind of a new thing. You know, I don't know about Showtime at all. I do remember HBO, though. And so anyway, um, Friday the 13th came on. Although it might not have been HBO. It might have been more like a TNT or something like that because because um, it had been out a little bit of time at this mm-hmm. point. Because I would have been... I think I was... I don't know. Well, you know what? I don't th- I don't think it happened out that long. I've probably only been out maybe two years. That's still good then on two, HBO. Two, three years, maybe. Maybe. But anyway. Um, so I begged them and begged them and begged them to watch it because they're all watching it. I wouldn't have, you know, been able to watch it myself. And that's also the house that we'll go back to the mirror episode again that I talked about that I didn't like that hallway because yeah. the mirror was at the end of that hallway. So, um, you know, on that side was the mirror and the bedrooms. And then this side was the the big room with the TV and stuff. So I really would have had nowhere to go. It would have been all by myself. But um, we had a baby blanket and it was Fafa's baby blanket that um, Grandma had kept. And we had all the girls... <laughs> And Mama were all um, trying to get under this tiny baby blanket. And every time there was like scary music, we would put it up over our eyes so we wouldn't see what oh. happened. So I I only saw a couple like kind of gross parts. And I, I, I've seen it since then, you know, since I've been older. So now I know what those parts are, but I had only seen a couple. However, we were doing pretty good, right? We're like, ah, oh, we made it through the movie. We got to see a horror movie. We didn't see the bad parts, but we made it through the movie. And then, um, have you seen it? I have not. Oh, I'm going to spoil the end for you. I mean, it is <laughs> an almost 40-year-old film at this okay, point. Okay, can I spoil the end yes. for you? And I'm sorry, anyone else, spoiler alert, spoiler alert, if you have not seen it, I'm going to say the ending here, so uh, turn off your your uh, iPods. Ears, or Ears, skip whatever. to next, <laughs> yeah. like, 30 seconds. How about that? <laughs> anyway. Um, so here we are, you know, scary music. All right. And it's so, uh, stereotypical. So every time I pile the blanket. So then we're getting to the end and the lone survivor is out on this placid, calm lake. Uh, some would say boat. a crystal lake. Yes. Uh, a cri- yeah. There you go. <laughs> a crystal lake. And, um, the, the crystal lake. Mm-hmm. And, um. I don't know if it was a canoe. It was a boat. Anyway, floating. Of course, tired as could be. I can't remember if she was covered in blood or just what. But anyway, she survived, right? And so thankful. She's taking in everything that's gone on, but she knows she survived. And she's going, drifting, drifting, drifting. And then all of a sudden, he comes up out of the lake and grabs her. Mm. No music. Nothing. It's like this big boom or some uh, some kind of music, but it was not like nice. It was just boom. It yeah. happened. And it's like, none of us were prepared for that. Oh, my gosh. My heart was racing for days. And it wasn't even gory. No. But it was definitely that shock value. I was like, huh. so anyway. They got you good. Yeah. And once again, I was pretty young at that time. But um, so anyway. Uh, so back to some of the things we talked about already that the buildings don't have um, a 13th floor, many of them. Many people, I had not heard this one before. Uh, so this is uh, Holiday Insights. 
Many people will not allow 13 people at the table. I haven't heard that one either. Yeah. So that's that's when they set up the second table, the kids' table, right? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's why, because I always had a kids' table, and I never knew why. I thought it was because I got kicked out because I was a kid, but maybe because there was 13. You know, it would have been 13 people at the table. So 13 people at a table is a lot, too. Like, <laughs> having to try and find a seat for everybody, making sure that they all have their silverware and I plates. Know. That is a big, and put the leaves in the table. Mm -hmm. uh, skippers would not go out to see with a crew of 12. Do you know why? I do not. Should I guess? Yeah. Uh, because one of them could not walk on water. I don't know. <laughs> what? I don't know. <laughs> I'm talking about the number 13 here. So if yeah. they go with a crew of 12, the captain makes 13. Okay. So when we did that um, kayaking excursion a couple weeks ago, remember there were 13 boats? I don't remember that. You, you don't remember when they all had to go here, here, or one, Well, I don't two, remember three. there being 13 Yeah, because he made a big point of it. who wants to be in the 13th boat, and he always stopped at 13, and everyone's like, okay, you're going to say 14. He's like, nope, 13's it. But anyway... Um, and then ancient Mayans of Central America were most advanced culture of all Americas, and they considered 13 sacred, which actually we kind of learned about that a little bit. So just real quick to kind of wrap it up here. So talking about um, since Friday the 13th is a phobia, a, well, actually, you know, based on a phobia, triskaidekaphobia, uh, phobia names. I'm glad you brought this up because I was going to actually talk about it. So phobia, the word phobia is Greek. Fear. Okay. Yes. And it's in Greek. And since you uh, studied Greek there. Phobos. Uh, I find it interesting anyway that I found this website. It's called The Phobia List. And he did all this stuff about phobias. Um, and he ties into uh, not himself, but other, you know, books of um, obsessive compulsive and fears and uh, just things like that and phobias. Uh, his name is Fred Culbertson. So uh, everything that I'm saying here, and it's just fascinating. I would, you know, if you have time, go look it up because it just had, he had a lot of breakdowns of not just the phobias themselves, but other things and conditions and causes and ways to help people maybe through and things like that. But it's phobialist.com. And he actually has, you can support him through um, PayPal. But he talks about how, um, phobias get their names so he talks about the greek mm -hmm. but that so the rule should be it should be a greek name yes. right but he goes into that um there's a melding of in most cases latin mm -hmm. and greek when it comes to the phobias it makes sense so now some are just straight greek but he did find that the more uh, majority of them are kind of that mix. And then he um, he actually talks about, so uh, to give like a modern day example rather than a phobia that would help people understand this was um, that a lot of these like meldings have become um, commonplace. So television is one of them. So you've got your Greek tele. And then the mm -hmm. vision part comes from Latin, meaning seeing. Mm -hmm. So seeing at a distance, you're so your TV set or television. Okay. So, so like telos is like, and maybe it is a different route. Maybe tele is something different. But telos is like 
again kind of the end game so you are looking towards the goal of something so like yeah. if you're talking about um the telos of a story you would be talking about how the destiny and the plot of it goes kind of so that would be i mean he's just starting it distant yeah. yeah that it's out there you have to go to it because it's distant but um so yeah he goes into how he gets all he's got extensive lists and names of them and there's pretty much a phobia of anything out there um but he talks about that he gets he got them all from a reference book basically and um it there are some other ones that may be out there but they're not the true greek or the meld um so he really hasn't substantiated or researched anything that wasn't validated in a reference book and he's always looking for new phobias um so he actually uh suggests multiple times on his website if you have one send it to me so i think that we should actually do that for you know for the um defy superstition and the friday 13th maybe come up with our own phobia that we the can get out fear. there yeah although i guess it would be maybe the name would be a phobia but we need to then make a superstition around it so i will go into what um my phobia is my extreme phobia, which is snakes. Oh no! Well, okay, uh, snakes would be. But what's my other? Oh, I don't know. That was my top pick. Really? What's another? Bridges. Phobia? Okay, there's that too. Yes. <laughs> okay, yeah. That one's a little bit more rational, I guess. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, but yeah, snakes would be too. But that's only because I've been attacked by snakes. I don't uh-huh. know if I really would mind them if I hadn't been attacked by them. But anyway, so so my top one would be bridges, closely followed by snakes. That one is, um, I really have no idea how to pronounce it, but Jeffrophobia. Oh, yes. You are scared of Jeffrey. <laughs> yes. So that's exactly according to Wikipedia, but almost any reference list is the anxiety disorder or specific phobia characterized by the fear of bridges. And I like that they put in the sentence because I used to be this way. I am much better now, but as a result, sufferers of Jeff, <laughs> I can't even pronounce Jeffer- it. So yeah. Maybe, maybe I just need to get over my phobia because I can't even pronounce exactly. it. Right? Uh, may avoid routes that will take them over bridges. And I used to do that all the time. And I almost panicked when I got stuck on the Sunshine Skyway Bridge mm-hmm. down there. You know, it's um, kind of going to South Florida, not quite in South Florida, but, uh, and it was a toll road on top of that. So I got stuck on a bridge that I didn't want to be on and had to pay for it on top of that. Um, that was like the only time that I kind of started to maybe have a panic attack. Yeah. Because bridges, I've been okay otherwise, but also refrain from being on them. And I think I conquered somewhat that fear when we were in San Francisco and I had to go over the Golden Gate Bridge, not once, but twice, and during that rainstorm. Yeah. So, anyway. Yeah, so that is my fear. And it's also uh, a toll road on the San Francisco Bridge. Yes, there was too. But in that case, we kind of had to be on it. Yeah. It really wasn't a whole, I mean... I could have got another bridge, but they were about as bad anywhere in that area. I think south wasn't too bad, but going over, 
like to the west and that way was pretty bad too so so anyway um we're kind of out of time because i need to let you get to yours i had listed some of the um the different ones down they actually had a site that um talked about halloween related phobias specifically gardening related phobias specifically Ooh. and then You'll see here, I know they can't see it, but they can I think hear it's, it though. Yeah, I think it's 15 pages here. So this is back to the phobia list one. He has compiled 15 pages and broken it down by, I have two of them, so I have 30 pages here, broken it down by alphabetical, either by the scientific name mm -hmm. or um alphabetical by the, the common name yeah or, or the fear. what would it be the fear yeah, yeah. That, that would probably be so anyway there were some definitely interesting ones in there i mean like i said there's something for anything they have fear of the pope yeah he's pretty scary you know <laughs> and you would think that would be papal p-a-p-a-l but it was papa p-a-p-a -A, no l so is that because of greek no, it probably has to do with just, like, the phonetics. Saying papophobia might be harder than papophobia. I don't, I don't know. know. See, to me, papophobia is a little bit easier because you're used to papal as pope. But anyway, and uh, the, the one that I will leave you on, which is just creepy. Um, 666, which is definitely, I think, it doesn't really matter probably what. Well, I guess... If you are into certain cult-type religions, it probably is an okay number, but I think most people kind of, like, look at if their phone number happens to be that or, you know, something comes up, they're like, Ooh. But anyway, this one. Yes. I'm going to try this. Hex acosio e hex a cont a hexaphobia. That sounds amazing. <laughs> I never got into uh, above 10 digits in Greek, so. Yeah. So, anyway, yeah, that would be 666, I guess. I really don't know. Or it's, it's definitely a lot of hexes there. Yeah. Which is interesting, hex, too, yeah. because if 666 is a lot of maybe that more occult and stuff like that, that the word is hex for six. Probably. That's a weird thing, too. Do, 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 do. Yeah. So we talked about triangles <laughs> and weird numbers. Salt in demonic faces. Yeah. So I think we'll kind of just leave it that. But maybe for uh, to celebrate Phobia Day, we could come up with a phobia that is not out there and come up with a superstition around it and send it to him and maybe make a legacy of having a superstition that gets passed on for generations. If you guys have any suggestions, you could send it through Twitter, Instagram, anything like that. Yeah. yeah. And uh, maybe we can get inspired by that. We could be inspired. We won't claim it. It's yours <laughs> if you suggest Send it, it on the way. Yeah. Did you know I have a star named after me? Yes. Yeah. So maybe we could come up with something about superstition around that star. I need to see... Like what the scientific name of it is or whatever. But. Miss Mistyastrophobia. <laughs> we gotta come up with something with that and cats and triangles. Okay. 
We just combine all the 13 that we read off. Do you think that people, like, they have a fear of going under the ladder because it's breaking either the Holy Trinity or breaking that life? Um, have a fear of the triangle, like, musical instrument? I'm sure there are, <laughs> there's a fear of, like, triangles Because somewhere. you would definitely be hitting and breaking that that barrier there. You're just shaking it up a bit. Well, now that we're all spooked or a little bit weirded out, at least, um, how about we get to something a little bit more uh, uplifting? (laughs) (laughs) Although, you know, the good superstitions were uplifting. They were positive. That is true. This one is really having to do with, like, looking in yourself to figure out how to get by in life and just really accomplish things he's defying superstitions all over again yeah (laughs) and actually that kind of does work like so basically this one is having to get over the superstition that you might create yourself that you aren't able to do something and with some encouragement and just and, you know, support around you, it actually can boost you to do things that you thought you would never be able to do. Okay. So the day is International Dot Day. Um, it is recognized by a whole cohort of teachers back in 2009, who I think Terry Shea is credited with really taking the charge. And it's after he presented his, um, or presented this book named The Dot, which is a multi-award winning children's book by Peter H. Reynolds, um, to his classroom. And they basically figured out from there what they could do with activities. And that eventually expanded to actually developing a handbook for it that you can get for free on the website and uh, all these hashtags and all these school groups working in collaboration with this holiday. Okay, I'm intrigued because I'm sitting here going, I don't understand how a dot makes you think of your inner self, but okay, I guess I will learn. Well, yes, you will. Um, And just to go back to when we're talking about, okay, September 15th, 15th-ish, like I was talking about, this is kind of like a teacher-related thing. So September 15th of this year is on a Sunday. So I think the reason why it's like 15th-ish is so that if it doesn't fall on a school day, they can actually make it work in that following week or so. Why don't they just say like some of our other days that it's, you know, always the the Monday closest to the 15th or the Friday. Hey, it works in the brand. There's another... So apparently this book is a part of a trilogy and... One of the other books is called Ish, which okay. I don't know much about that. I only looked up dot, so we'll just stick I was on gonna this say topic. dot dash and exclamation. Dot ish and exclamation. <laughs> the story of dot describes a young girl named Vashti and how she becomes to develop how she comes to develop a love of painting thanks to her art teacher, and so basically. Vashti, she, in the beginning of the book, it's the end of art class, she has a blank page in front of her, and the teacher says, oh, can I at least see 
anything on this paper, please. And Vashti's like, I can't draw. And so the art teacher says, just do one mark. And so Vashti goes ahead, puts a little dot on it. And that is kind of how the story develops after that um, and evolves. And it starts describing these ways of just how to encourage somebody and how that actually brings out something in them that they might not be able to see otherwise. Actually, before I go on any further, I thought Vashti was such an interesting name, too. And I've recently been listening to uh, Vashti Bunyan. I don't know how to pronounce her name. Have you heard of her? No. She is, like, she got started in the 60s i think like 1967 is a really big album for her it's very hippie like but she is still producing music it is my friend clyde's favorite artist so it was just like oh, okay this is cool um i like it for a cat name vashti that'll be our next cat name yeah i don't know what the etymology of vashti is i don't know if it's like russian or uh, see, I would have thought. Or... See, I would have thought more like Hindi. Maybe Indian. Bunyan. I mean, like <laughs> that's not what this girl's. You know, maybe that's name a, is maybe the, the book, last but... name's a stage name. I I think most of it is a stage <laughs> name. This woman is from the UK, and yeah. Anyway, that was just a little aside. Um, that might be a recommendation. Listen to Vashti Bunyan on this day. <laughs> Has no correlation other than they share the first name. But really, you can like kind of segment International Dot Day into three of the core principles from the book. So the first one be make your mark, which is kind of like the slogan for this entire book and this experience. So like I said, Vashti, she started to discover her interest in art by placing a mark uh, from a pencil on a blank sheet of paper. And in this way, making your mark means you've got to take the first step at completing something to be able to actually like expand your knowledge or just be able to take on, oh, Jimmy! Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Not a black cat passing by us, no. but an orange cat. Jimmy is the talker of the house. <laughs> but Jimmy, you want to be on the podcast? He's a little busy. <laughs> so it is your, you know, first step to completing something, and that can seem daunting. And another important part to go along with making your mark is you also have to own this first step that you take. So Vashti's teacher requests that Vashti sign her artwork before she could be dismissed from class. And by having Vashti possess her work, it kind of becomes like an extension of herself and was able to, you know, get outside of her comfort zone and let people actually start to see her own artwork. And so she's not just self-judging herself and what she can produce. And so I think in like, the way of if you are wanting to celebrate this day, making your mark can really mean anything, again, as long as you are taking the first step to really, like, get beyond something that seems scary. And this can, you know, be for children. It could be, like, I don't know. It could be doing a sport that they have always wanted to try, but 
you know, they might be scared that the other kids are stronger or something. But if they get to it and they actually do it with full gusto, then I think that could really help them get further in the sport. I was thinking for adults, interviews. <laughs> and applications since that's what I'm going through yeah. you know it's like it, you get rejected over and over but you still got to keep doing that step and it's daunting but you got to own it <laughs> I have never thought about a signature on artwork or painting that way before mm -hmm. so that's an interesting way to look at it and I think that now when we go to art galleries and different things all look differently at that you know I it's not that I thought it was like an ego thing because the person did create it but to I don't know to totally do it from that side that like you're owning it is a very interesting concept well I think it really becomes important to one of the other features and core principles of this day is really trying to support someone's endeavors when it comes to their workmanship, a project, or something like that. Because within the book, Vashti is surprised when the next day she comes into class and right above the teacher's desk is her artwork framed. And the fact that her teacher displays her simple artwork can kind of like interpret this as a turning point in how she actually thinks about her own abilities. And again, I think it's like, you can get so caught up in how others might think about you that it might hinder you from actually expressing yourself. And so just by being able to see that somebody was appreciating it or interpreting, not interpreting, but, you know, observing her artwork. And then, yeah, she was getting praise, like, this is something that's worthy it really pushed her further in the book to create new and different artwork pieces. And I'm not going to spoil the book. <laughs> it's a very short book, by the way. It's maybe like three minute long read. So it is for children, but I think a lot of the principles in it are still very interesting and you can place it onto like an adult lifestyle. Okay. Well, it really shows that... Um... You know, you need a good support group around you and anyone that's supportive can just really excel. And we used to teach this when um, I did the corporate training and the culture that you don't know what a person's day has been like or their life has been like or whatever. And just one small thing that you can do that may not seem like a big deal to you can be such a big deal to someone else. So, you know, just... Um, even if it wasn't the most beautiful dot, realizing that she needed that extra push, um, you know, that was a great teacher to say, how can I do that? Oh, let's display it. And then, you know, that will give her the confidence she needs. And um, just one, you know, it kind of goes into pay it forward and stuff. Just one little thing that you do that isn't a big deal can really be a big deal to someone else. And I think it's interesting when, so when I was reading about the story, most of the articles or the website was interpreting the fact that Vashti, she knows that the dot on the painting 
is a dot that didn't require that much effort. But when her art teacher does display it and gets her thinking about like, okay, this could be something that she could get interested in and develop better skills, that's when Vashti's like, oh, I know that's not the best work I could do and I want to prove myself better. And so I think it is when it comes to a project or something, a lot of people will know that the product they are showing you, maybe it's a work in progress, is not the best. Or maybe it's something that they have completed, but it's still, you know, like it could be improved upon. I think within us, we kind of know that and we always want to better ourselves. So just critique criticizing and critiquing somebody from like the get-go saying like oh you could do better here or here maybe that's helpful but in a lot of ways that might be kind of restrictive to actually how they can feel you know it's it's weird it's a weird balance to have especially because i understand there are a lot of people who have hard time giving or receiving comments or compliments i should say so I think overall it's better to, like you said, you, you know, you don't know what's going on in their head, so give them praise for what they do do. Yeah, and definitely the way, you know, that you choose the words can be a huge difference too in supporting someone or, or uh, bring them down. So the third core principle of this day was not really used too much in the marketing except for in the the educational handbook that it's cool because they are very open to you know wanting you to spread and participate in this event so you can go on their website and register for the day and they will give you this like pretty thorough educational handbook it's like 19 pages long pdf and it gives you all these ideas about what you can do and kind of different things you can talk about with the kids or anybody you wish to talk about this with. Um, But they mentioned the idea of connecting dots. So I took that as using the knowledge you already have on a subject or a technique and linking it to a new interest of yours. So like in the book, they were not the book, but in the handbook, they're talking about Um, a teacher being able to apply the same idea of uh, like mathematics with art and that how uh, somebody who is very good at art might not understand the mathematics but when you start understanding maybe like the principle of the golden was the golden rule not the golden rule (laughs) but like the Fibonacci sequence or something like that it actually can start lending um, new insight into a subject that you don't know as much. And it kind of can do vice versa, where it will actually reinforce something that you already know. Um, so, like, I was thinking that, <laughs> going back to the Greek, many great technicians in the sense of the Greek word for artisan were polymaths, another Greek word. I'm just going off and off here on Greek, but that's somebody who is interested and gets an understanding of multiple disciplines. And um, it's just kind of cool to think that like great artisans, people who create and get involved with the world are people who 
you know, have a good understanding of human biology, such as Leonardo da Vinci. Or maybe Aristotle's understanding of philosophy informed him of his politics and mathematics and other sciences such as zoology. So, like, if you're in school right now, whether it's elementary, maybe it's college, <laughs> it may be kind of, like, hard to understand why you are learning something, but know that whatever you're learning can be used to reinforce something you already like or get you into something that is completely new and kind of, like, just develops it how you think about the world. I was thinking about this with my, like, you know, with it being languages, you learn one language, and then you kind of learn the rules of what that is, and you start to learn a second language. It's different, but it is still using kind of the same principles, and it reinforces also the language you already knew prior to that, and you just kind of build out from there. Or even, like, doing ukulele music, um, it's a different way of performing, versus a piano, but now that I'm kind of like linking the piano and just like the basics of the piano with ukulele and looking at music sheets, it's kind of all making sense in the musical theory realm. So, you know, I think it's interesting to kind of talk about that too when you are trying out something new. Um... So, going off of activities from the handbook that I thought were pretty interesting, uh, Catherine Hone Conway mentioned bringing a bunch of kids together in a darkened room, draw with flashlights. Their motions are captured on a digital camera to set a slow shutter speed. This combines performance art and drawing to create colorful, bright dots. That's cool. Uh, yeah. It's kind of like what I used to do with sparklers. <laughs> exactly. Another one was bring in some plain t-shirts and fabric and fabric paint and create your own dot day attire. You could also wear clothing with dots already on them or put dot stickers on clothing. Uh, another example is take five colors of bubble mix, tempera paint, a bit of water, and a squirt of dish soap. Give each child their own straw to blow into the mixture until it bubbles just over the top, and don't forget the place paper on top of the bubbles to catch the prints yeah we used to do that actually with the the kids in preschool i think that's an interesting way to create dots yeah and it's like scientific you can get <laughs> into it i like the ones that were pretty involved you know and so there are also the photos that accompany this handbook showing off different activities done by school groups every year around the world uh one of them I really do like is a wall of dots as 3D textures that create larger dots. So they kind of look like beads that are glued onto the wall or something like that. But it just is like, it's cool to look at. They're all colorful, but also having that 3D texture accompanying it was pretty just visually appealing. <laughs> In thinking about what dots kind of represent an art too. I was thinking about pointillism. You know, that type yes. of style of art, right? And I actually got into articles talking about how contemporary art uses different dots. And it kind of did start off with pointillism. Do you have any idea of when pointillism 
was a thing. I should know this because that was like the main style that I used to actually do when I did artwork. Yeah, and because one reason I liked it, it was so easy to shade things with it. And so it was very, I don't know, I found it to be one of the easier styles of art. So I tended to use it a lot more, but... um, that's an interesting thing, just as we come up later into this about little discussion. <laughs> well, about pointillism in specific. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, since you're kind of saying that, it must not be very old. I'll say 40s. Uh, no, I actually thought that's kind of when it did start. Because um, to me, it kind of looks very 50s. Like, I was explaining earlier, there's a bit of a segment that I cut out. And, um, but just talking about how comic books use dots as a type of shading device, and that was very representative of, in the 1950s pop art movement, too. But no, um, the years that it was actually very active were around 1886 to the 1890s. Oh, wow. And 1886, we can pretty much say, like, that's the start of it, because that was the um, first time a pointillist painting had been displayed at an art exhibit. And it was actually the final Impressionist paintings in Paris. Um, That was the final one ever. And it so pointillism goes into a neo-impressionist or like a post-impressionist kind of art style. And it can be divided into the earliest form, which was called divisionism, or which focused on color separation, which will be explained in a bit. And the latter would actually be pointillism actual, <laughs> you know, the actual name of it, which focused on the application of the paint onto canvas, which is more of what you're talking about. So Georges Seurat is accredited with displaying the first pointless creation and dimanche après-midi à l'île de la Grande Jatte, or a Sunday afternoon on the island of the Grande Jatte, or even more simply, Sunday in the park. I'm glad you said that and not me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it is a 6 foot 10 inch uh, by 10 foot canvas piece. So wow. it's pretty large. Yeah, yeah that's huge. Yeah. Decorated with many Victorians relaxing or even sauntering. And I'm going back a few episodes talking about World Saunterer's Day. Sauntering on a wooded bank that borders a gentle lake with boats on it. So it looks to me like a Sunday maybe in Central Park with a high pollen count. (laughs) (laughs) I think, I want to say I've seen that picture as famous, but I thought it was, I didn't realize it was pointillism. So, well, technically it is divisionist, um, but it still used the same application process as pointillism, and that's kind of what started off the whole pointillism movement. So, if you really want to get, like, nuance in here, no, it's not pointillist. (laughs) But I am going to show you it, and... Yes, yeah, I know know that one, but I didn't realize it was pointillist. Pointillism. Yeah. So I think most people have seen it in some yeah. way because of pop culture. Of course, the painting would become a popular piece due to, most notably, the Ferris Bueller's Day Off, where 
Ferris Bueller is in the is it the Chicago Museum of Art? I know it's definitely I Chicago, but I don't know the name of the museum that owns this piece. But, you know, he goes in and he just stares at the painting and then it keeps switching back and forth between his face and, like, it has a whole uh, landscape portrait of this picture and then it keeps zooming in until, like, it reaches this one girl in the picture with blue eyes and all that. Um, Another recent film that included it was Looney Tunes Back in Action, (laughs) where the characters, they go into the same museum and they go through several different paintings and interact with everything in there. So, of course, they go into this one. Uh, Sondheim also wrote the music and lyrics to a play by James Lapin, Lapin entitled A Sunday in the Park with Georges, which is... yeah. Basically, a story of Georges Seurat with, I think, his grandson, his son, or something like that, while he's actually developing and painting this scene inside the park. Which, I don't know if he did. I don't know if he did that. Um, But a really fantastical article that gives you an overview of kind of like how painted dots entered contemporary paintings. Um, It's called... Is dot painting the remnant of pointillism? <laughs> Describes the origin of this particular painting. So Serrat based his dot technique on the theoretical writings of the physicist Ogden Rode. In his 1879 book, Modern Chromatics, Rode described a theory called optical mixture, which postulates that from a distance, human eyes mix colors together in order to create the perception of fields of solid color in the mind. In so doing, Rode explained, the mind perceives more luminous and vivid colors than what truly exist. So basically, Seurat thought that if he were to put all these dots on a painting, the human mind would be able to perceive colors that the artist would not have on hand to actually fill in kind of like a true experience of what it would actually be. Um, I'm sure that's based on the same idea that as long as the first letter and last letter of a word are there, if the letters in between are kind of jumbled or mixed up, you still can get the word itself. Yeah, you'll form it. Yeah. But what's so interesting is that they thought, and I saw some other articles saying Rode actually didn't think a more vivid color would come about, but that's what this quote is saying. Um but again, Sarah actually thought that like a different type of green would come about if the perceptor actually saw it without a specific uh, blend of green on there other than those few dots and that it would actually become something more bright and more luxurious to look at. But many did not enjoy this type of scientific perspective when it came to art, though. Which I think is interesting because it was mainly the Impressionists. There are also athletes who were not about it. But the Impressionists that came before renounced the idea that art could be absent of movement. Which I think is such an interesting thing that they would be like... I, I understand like they're trying to get away from the mechanical kind of feel of painting and the rigid rigidity that was apparent in the painting world prior to the Impressionists. 
But at the same time, like, this is forming off of a scientific movement and off of, like, natural human perception of the world, which is kind of what the Impressionists were about. When technology started affecting how they started perceiving the world, you know, the whole origin of the story of Impressionism was, like, Monet or whoever it was, was in a train, and because they were going so by, going so quickly by different environments, the environments started to blend, and it was just, he got the impression of what he was looking outside the window pane, and talking about, like, photographs and all that, and how that would come to structure how we actually physically perceive the world and all that, I think it's interesting that the traditional Impressionists did not like this other interpretation of the world. I don't know. It seemed really funny to me. It's very interesting because um, there's a lot about, you know, tricking the mind and what you see and what you don't see. And it's, it's fascinating that there's such a science on that and they would bring it into the art world. And it's kind of like... Um, I'm probably not gonna say it right. Trompe de l'œil. Trompe de l'œil. Yeah. de l'œil. Yeah. You know that um, these paintings that you think are real, basically, and you could walk, you know, into another world, a garden, because it's, it's a illusory like idea. Yeah. yeah. And um, how a two D structure can really be forced in our mind, force our mind to think it's a three D object or a different color or whatever. And that kind of goes when you'd said about like the, the blending of the colors and seeing something else. Those, um, I don't know what they're really called, but those things that you're supposed to stare for like 30 seconds, that's like a dot on a paper mm-hmm. or something. And then you're supposed to look at the wall and, and, image, and, you, right? and you see an image, but it's like you were staring at a black dot, but then it's red on the wall and stuff. Um, so it is interesting what you're, your brain perceives and most recently i think that was brought up with the the um is it gold or is it blue dress dress? yeah Yeah. so and um at first it was like i could only see i couldn't can't remember if it was white or the gold or whatever i could only see i couldn't see it's blue but then later i went back to it and if i scrolled up just a tiny bit all of a sudden it was like totally blue, like a totally different color. Yeah. And it just amazes me that your brain can do that. And I guess that's why magicians can make so much money because your yeah. your brain tries to fill in the gaps and what's not logical. Georges Seurat, he had one theory and he kind of wanted to prove it. And for him, it was kind of resolved after this first painting he continued with divisionism, which is this whole idea of color separation. You have two different colors, your mind will blend the two. Um, but he is still kind of known for pointillism and kind of for divisionism, but he wouldn't use that solely as his art form. He would use it to um, enhance different paintings later on. But overall, there would be other artists that would uh, become attributed to this form, such as Pasignac, who is more of the pointillist version. He was more interested in the application of placing the paint on the canvas and 
I don't really know if he thought it was easier or if he was just interested in like the thickness or kind of like what kind of materials it was, but it was so interesting reading that this whole article, the did pointillism or does dot painting come as a remnant from pointillism and all that? Because with each rendition of dots in a painting, it would take on some kind of a new uh, way of thinking about the dots. Sometimes it had to do with the form. Sometimes it had to do with like a metaphysical characteristic to circles and how they might be portrayed in a certain uh, culture or in a certain artist style. But perhaps the most interesting group of contemporaneous painters that work with painted dots as their medium, to me, are the Aboriginal peoples of Australia. So when I think of like Aboriginal peoples of Australia, right, I'm thinking like really old civilization, so cave paintings and stuff. But no, this type of painting is actually pretty modern. It started in 1971 with a group of students who painted a mural on the wall of a school um, and would later form into the, I hope I'm pronouncing this right, the, Papu, the Papunya Tula art movement. See, I think about like the all the boomerangs that you see have dots. They're brown with like white dots on them. Yeah. But, like, I don't know if that's, like, ancient or if that's, like, modern, yeah. too. This definitely goes back to, you know, that whole event with the students. And it's just such an interesting development in the Aboriginal culture. So these paintings describe the dream times from Aboriginal groups. Dream times are the historical accounts of their group that have survived after countless generations of oral tradition. So these stories also had a visual aspect to them as they would be drawn out onto sand or painted onto members' bodies during certain religious events. The earliest editions of Papunya paintings were not made of dots, actually. The sacred visuals found in the sand or painted onto human skin were depicted onto canvas and oil and stuff like that. I think it was oil. They used different pigments that came from the natural environment too. Um, I'll mention those in a bit, but they included straight-line figures, animals, and fully formed deities that might represent the creation of the world or it might, you know, any number of stories that are spoken about the outback and all that. Um, however, the tribes became worried that their personal stories would become appropriated by both Westerners and other Aboriginal tribes. So the answer was to encode the paintings with dots. If you didn't know what you were looking for, you wouldn't be able to figure out what was going on in the painting. And you may wonder why is it so important to shield this truth if you're also wanting to kind of like show it off. You know, it's like a catch-22 of, okay, well, be nice to know what's going on. But so the tribes shared their intimate histories only with those that they can entrust. And there are even different parts of a story that might be given to a member as they grow older and wiser, as they become the next leaders in charge of telling that story. 
I think that w- it was an important way to kind of like keep these traditions secretive because it helped protect them from invaders. Because if you are talking about like even nowadays, a lot of the paintings will represent locations that are very important to the group. And if you're talking about protecting natural resources for your community, such as shelter, hunting grounds, and springs with fresh water, um, you know, you don't want to be giving that up to a stranger who might have something similar, but not exactly like the same structure and the same details and all that. That's something that's like very much padded in and concrete to uh, that specific tribe. And in the case of Australian Aboriginals, much of their culture had been torn apart by Western influences. They were moved from their homelands and treated as second-rate citizens, their languages were suppressed. So their stories, you know, we're trying to understand them and kind of like what they went through, they're reminiscent to what many Native American communities dealt with, especially during the Trail of Tears era and you know, after, before, the entire time they worked with Europeans, essentially. But having a way to keep your roots that no other person can interact with um, can give hope and identity when others try to strip you of those features, you know? It's like, if, if other groups are trying to tear you apart, tear your spirit, and make you feel less than a human having that connection with somebody that is from your community and they might not even live around you if you guys have that connection then you still have those roots um today the information depicted in the paintings must be approved by a tribe's leadership actually and the paintings have much to have done much to preserve aboriginal history not so much in the way of like for the stories to get propagated over and over in the same tribe, but in the way of it's been promoting cultural awareness to the other Australians who are not of the Aboriginal communities. They also are a major economic resource for tribes who may receive hundreds of dollars for a painting that's sold. And again, because they are a marginalized people, they don't really have the benefit of earning a lot of money. And a lot of the time they still live on their tribal lands now or into whatever homeland territory they were forced to go into. Um, did it talk about um, how how they sold them? Like, did they, are they mostly sold to tourists or? I don't know if they're necessarily sold to tourists. I know there are private collectors for them. I know there are many museums now dedicated to purchasing these pieces and displaying them for you know art gallery goers and all that um but they can get good money out of this they're the website that i have been receiving a lot of this information from is the aboriginal art australia.com which actually helps to connect people to um certain artists and paintings you also still have the, what did I call it? So it's the Papunya, I think it's Trust Center. But basically, in 1972, a year after the major event in 71, um, that's when 
the a bunch of aboriginal peoples got together and actually started to really look into this as being a way to prosper the different tribes and i know the first two tribes i i can't pronounce them and i don't have them on the paper lunjati i think was one of them and then like Pupu is maybe it was Punya. <laughs> I don't know. But you know, it was like an quick cursing, it's supposed to be a family show. But it was like this intertribal working community and it's only um led by that group, which is cool. So the artwork is very diversive and it had and still contains natural pigments derived from the typical surroundings. Um, the website, aboriginalartaustralia.com, reports originally colors were restricted to variations of red, yellow, black, and white produced from ochre, charcoal, and pipe clay, the, you know, natural materials around them. Later, Once again, that's kind of what you see on the, the boomerangs and stuff. Yeah, I think so. I'm actually going to show you some of the paintings because... It, Yes, they kind of look like the boomerang art, but like these are intense. They are gorgeous. I I, I would love to have some, honestly. <laughs> so let me go ahead and just finish up this one quote so I can show you it and kind of like describe maybe what is going on in here. So later acrylic mediums were introduced, allowing for more vivid, colorful paintings. And that the dot technique gives a painting an almost 3D effect and a sense of movement and rhythm. And I really get that in the first photo that I am showing you. Um, and I have two photos if you want to like swipe this way. But I'm handing the painting over to mom. It's a bunch of circles that are made up by dots or dashes. Um... See, to me, that looks like the boomerang art. Does it? Yeah. Okay. See, to me, it looks... <laughs> the, the first the first one. Okay. Not necessarily the okay, second one. Okay, see? And they are so different. There are ones that have, like, leaves made of these dots, but they are so vibrant in their browns, and it's so pretty. Um, one of these has, like wavy stripes on either side and there's like a wave down the middle and they're pinks and yellows and turquoise the first one that mom was looking at again with those circles they were all like grays yeah and they're more muted muted more natural they mm -hmm. if i were to like compare the two i would think of nature and um i don't know calm and you think that's <laughs> calm looking <laughs> Well, maybe the colors. No, no. The colors. Yeah. No, this I, is like hyperactive. You know, I can see movement. where you had said about movement because, yeah, the way that they do all the lines and the blacks and whites, the blacks and whites always give that appearance of movement. Yeah. One reason they kind of did, I think, with like the Twilight Zone and stuff like that. Or the second one, to me, does not look um, Australian at all. It makes me think of uh, or Haracha. What are those? Um, covers sombrero no not no sombrero. not the sombrero <laughs> what, what they would wear with it though like the little over th throw over little things caves i don't know yeah, yeah the little cape things um like you know in mexico and near burrows and stuff like that that's what that reminds me of so uh the first one 
makes me think more of like like I said the Aboriginal and the and the boomerang art and things like that and very calming in nature and that's bright and festive and um like Cinco de Mayo have you seen the third photo I know I didn't know there was a third so this one looks also very natural to me but like the best way to describe it so like the first one kind of looks alien to me because it looks like somebody (laughs) with a round very spherical head and like several spheres and one eye yeah yeah like a cyclops or something but in this one it looks like an amoeba yeah it looks like an amoeba but it could also look like a flyer flower but definitely looks like an amoeba and it's not to say that all these uh paintings look like these like i was saying there are ones that you can still tell there are figures and they're not the ones from the early period these are still ones being made um they just look so abstract i there was this one if i you want to hand back the phone the third one actually looks um patchwork now i was going to say more african so to me the first one looks australian the second one looks mexican and the third one looks african I am looking up what is, so some of the time they will still describe what the painting represents. And uh, I don't know if they do that with all of them, but this one relates to a Dreamtime story. Apparently there are like seven sisters somehow related to the Milky Way galaxy. Yeah. And it's, represented in these paintings so i don't know it looks so that looks like a seahorse a sea dragon it looks like a sea dragon it kind of looks like uh veins yeah to me yeah i don't know i see the sea dragon i don't know but it's very abstract right i mean it does look like capillaries too but i first see a sea dragon yeah but it's just, I don't know, they look so pretty. Like, look at that one. That's the same representation, too. <laughs> See, that but... looks like a virus or something. Yeah. Um, oh, this one's really pretty, too. I'm just looking at all these. And this one actually has, like, to me, it looks like a woman figure. Maybe they could sell their um, paintings to the scientific community, the medical. Maybe. Let's see, do I have anything else to say about them? Oh, well... Yeah, so, <laughs> so uh, I really like the handbook for International Dot Day. I like the suggestions that they make, but I really don't like one of them, and I just <laughs> gotta give a forewarning. It suggests to decorate pinwheels using the dot painting technique of Australian indigenous people. P- please don't do that. That is literal cultural appropriation (laughs) that there's nothing good to come from that (laughs) so you can look it up you can talk about it (laughs) you can talk about why it would be bad for anybody outside of the community to do it (laughs) (laughs) um but really you know like i i gave the list of different ways to celebrate the day and whatever it is they would really love for you to share your activity with them on social media, you know, hashtag dot day, hashtag make your mark. But I think it's a really cool uh, book and uh, all the different activities that come from it. Even there is something about like making baked goods that have dots in them. So like M&M cookies (laughs) or something like that. But I think it's a cool way to get kids just doing something. And maybe if 
a lot of the time they do go ahead and have them read the book and go through a conversation, but just like, yeah, I think it has good principles. Well, the funny thing is when you were saying that you were doing um, Dot Day, all I could think about was, I'm like, wait a minute, uh, isn't that January? That's Polka Dot Day, so that's like where my mind went. So um, when you started talking about, you know, it was like all about your inner self and bringing your inner self out and stuff and having that confidence. I'm going, polka dot day. It still wasn't quite sinking in because I knew you had said dot day, not polka dot day, but I'm still thinking dots. (laughs) Yeah. So. Well, there was an article that I was reading where they were not exclusively connecting polka dot, the dance, to the whole pointillism movement and just dots entering into a like greater commercial industry not polka dot the dance oh but you're talking about just polka dots polka dots yeah well, polka appara- dot day apparently like mini mouse polka dots apparently polka dots the actual like you know dots maybe came out of the polka dot dance movement in the 1800s <laughs> because the way people are positioned they are slightly shifted um off you know like uh center so they do have that kind of like crisscross i I don't know what you would call it but (laughs) apparently this article is um trying to say that maybe the polka dot dance inspired what would become like the uh but the the dots that were used in the comic book the bayard it's not bayard i can't remember what they're called right now so yeah, that is my information download of International Dot Day. Yeah, that was very interesting because I would not have considered that at all for dots. No. So, and just um, kind of goes back to even our first episode where we talk about how we're so commercialized and everything has to be so much better than the last time and top it and you know, be so intricate and complicated where all these other cultures, simplicity is, you know, a lot of times the name of the game. And it's interesting to take just that, make your mark, and it could be as simple as a dot to really excel. Hey, it was an American, I believe, who made this book. So there's (laughs) that. (laughs) So interesting concept. It has been translated into 25 different languages. I know that. Uh I don't remember how many awards it won, but yeah. (laughs) So go out, read the book, and I want to be responsible and say go read the book, but they do have um, it as a source on like YouTube and other places where they do narration for kids. That's how I read it. (laughs) (laughs) And you can make a dot out of big pile of salt and then throw it over your left shoulder there you go yeah it's mini (laughs) dots yeah they actually had those old-fashioned candies you can still get them at the get cracker barrel the little dots that you peel off a paper yeah i I don't like this (laughs) i don't remember those at all so anyway well that was our two three-ish holidays kind of three this week yeah, yeah. Celebrating so two uh, on the same three day. Three-ish, because yeah, you got three two ish. and I had one-ish. Yes. <laughs> so it works. 
We will be back next week with two more holidays. Thank you, guys. Bye. Thank you for joining us in our hop through these silly and strange celebrations. We'll be back again with another assortment of holidays to inspire new traditions. You can follow us at Don't Tell the Easter Bunny on Facebook and Instagram, or Don't Tell the EAS1 on Twitter. And for emails, you can use Don't Tell the Easter Bunny at gmail.com. See, See you, you next time. time.